Hello, friends. Dave Bjork here, lung cancer survivor, patient advocate, and yes, I'm the research evangelist. And welcome to the Research Evangelist Podcast, coming to you as always from just outside of Boston. And you know, the Greek meaning of evangelist is bringing the good news. And I like to think that I'm bringing the good news in cancer research and care by interviewing people in life sciences that are doing amazing work. I call them brilliant but not famous. And well, the not famous part is irony because they are all very well known and respected in their field by their peers and the communities that they serve. But my next door neighbor might not recognize their name. But they really are brilliant and they are all committed to their work. And I love meeting these amazing people and sharing a little bit about them, their passions, the work they're doing. And I also believe in serendipity. So I hope some positive things come every time from sharing their stories with you and to the universe. So today I'm super excited uh, to have on my show uh, Melissa Wheeler. And she has over 20 years of experience in healthcare with a specialized focus on oncology. Melissa is the Director of Disparities and Outreach Program at the Levine Cancer Institute in North Carolina, uh, a department dedicated to eradicating the burden of cancer in underserved communities through prevention education, screening, and early detection. She's designed and launched several initiatives that we're going to be talking about, including some amazing work in lung cancer screening, which I can't wait for her to share with us. Uh, Melissa got her undergraduate degree from the University of South Florida, and she got her master's in health administration from Ohio University. So, Melissa, welcome to the program. Dave, thank you so much for having me today. I'm just, this is such a huge honor, and the work you do is monumental for, you know, not just survivors, but all of us in the space of humanity. So, I'm really, really grateful. I married into a Greek family. So, that means everything translates to good food, and you probably are going to argue a time or two, um, but um, I, I love being here, and I'm really excited for us. You know, we've had conversations before, but I'm really excited for us to just talk about how do we do better? You know, how do we open the doors? How do we create access points? How do we just do better? So thank you so much. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I've, I've really enjoyed our previous conversations and I've been really looking forward to having this conversation with you on, on my show. So let's start by having you tell us a little bit about yourself. I know you're, I think you're originally from New Jersey because I think I picked up on that, on that accent a little bit the first time we met, but uh, tell us a little about the, the younger Melissa Wheeler. Yeah, well, she is feisty. She's still in there and she comes <laughs> out in a good debate. Um, I'm a Jersey girl. Uh, at heart, that's where I was raised, but have uh, clearly migrated my way south so I can pick up a good southern accent and a great bless your heart if I need to, uh, <laughs> but uh, have have long been um, long been invested in just helping people. Uh, like you mentioned, my undergrad degree was in social work, but I always knew that that meant I was going to have to prove more. So I went back for my master's in administration because I had to be that bleeding heart with a business plan uh, because you have to be able to demonstrate to those that write the check that it's worth that investment. And I think when we talk about prevention and we talk about early access, we have to be able to demonstrate that cause because it's very hard to calculate. Um, I've been asked many, many times before, how do you know you've prevented cancer from happening? And my response, again, by C. Jersey, how do you know I haven't? <laughs> 
That's good. I like that. Yeah, it's true. And I think I, I, in, so, in some ways, I'm kind of a bleeding heart uh, at my core as well. So it's probably why we get along so well. Uh, but I, I love the fact that you, you know, you, you, from a young age, you, you know, you wanted to do good in the world. And I, and I, and I really appreciate that. And, and maybe, um, we could start with, uh, you know, talking about maybe a little bit about some experience, you know, uh, growing up and your mom was a single mom and, and how that maybe influenced, you know, kind of the journey that you're on. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, my mom was a single mom to four of us kids. And, um, of course, you know, back in the generation that I was born in, which was feels like I'm only 20 now, but was clearly not that, um, she had a lot of struggle, right? So there were times where we went without insurance and there were times with which we had to present for healthcare needs and the reception at that time. And even today, still in, in some places and spaces, wasn't as welcoming or embracing as we would all hope for. And so over time, she developed a distrust. And so she honestly, you know, unless there was something really critical, never sought health care for herself or for the for her kids unless she absolutely had to. And as a result, she died at 67 of what was suspected to be pancreatic cancer, but went undiagnosed because she really did not trust the health system to take care of her. Um, she just based on her experience, she felt very much that it didn't matter. You know, she could tell all day long what was going on, but if she didn't have the right resource to back it up or, you know, she, her story wasn't heard and she wasn't seen. And so while pancreatic cancer, I know, comes with its own set of challenges, I do feel like her quality of life could have been vastly different. Her pain threat, like her pain levels could have been vastly different. Um, so I do feel she suffered from the system that has kind of, been built over many, many, many years. Well, and uh, yeah, you know, I know you you mentioned to me, you know, going if you going in to get uh, some treatment and you didn't have insurance, you were kind of told to get to the back of the room, and yeah, we'll see. Oh, right? Yes, yeah. So um, I had a. Uh, it was like a cyst or a lump that developed on the side of my foot. And we actually kind of waited until I couldn't even put the shoe on anymore. And we presented to the clinic and the front desk. I would, I would call her receptionist, but she didn't really receive us. She <laughs> basically said, um, your insurance card, please. And of course, it wasn't available at the time. And uh, she didn't really make eye contact, just looked to the back and said, hey, here's another uninsured. What do we do with them? To which the response was, put them at the back of the room and tell them we'll get to them if we can. And so that kind of set the stage for medical mistrust, right? And yeah. so it doesn't necessarily lend itself to a healing space or a space where you want to seek someone's guidance for any sort of issue, let alone the prevention pieces that we also desperately need. Yeah. And I, I always hate to hear those stories and I, you would have been on this journey anyway, because of who you are, but I'm sure that that, that did have an impact because then you know, she get she get your mom got older then if she's not going in for 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 diagnostic or whatever then then she's delaying what ended up happening and that's yeah. that's just that is just the system letting her down uh, oh yeah yeah absolutely and so yeah. 
My father-in-law was a Vietnam veteran. He was exposed to Agent Orange during two voluntary tours in Vietnam. Um, as a result, developed diabetes, which is a very normal course for that exposure. Uh, but he was attending VA appointments for his entire life past coming out of country. And um, at 56, he passed from metastatic gastric cancer. He had been going faithfully to the appointments, but his symptoms went unrecognized. And it was it was about 10 weeks after he called me on the phone one day and said, I, I need your help. I came in for a hernia operation, but now they tell me I have cancer everywhere. And so again, it's just, it. the health system is so complex that we really need someone, whether it's on the inside or the outside to be that interpreter, someone to help us kind of navigate and figure out what questions do we ask? Who do we bring with us? How do we advocate? Is it okay to advocate? What are the things that we need to get through the day to day? Um, and how do we erase that sort of shame and stigma of sharing those vulnerable parts of yourself where it hurts, it's painful, I don't feel good, uh, it, and not attributing fault to it. So there's much work to be done. Totally, totally. And I, and I truly believe that all of us are just one diagnosis away from you know, from uh, something that we have nothing, no understanding of. Like we, I can say, I know, I know a lot about lung cancer and, uh, but, but if I don't know anything about gastric cancer, I've never been diagnosed. I don't know the symptoms. I've never felt the symptoms. So, you know, I, we're all one diagnosis away from being thrown into a system where we don't know what to do. Right. Yeah. Yeah. This is again, why we're besties, because I always tell people we in healthcare, we're one DRG, which is a diagnostic related group, which is how they code us in the insurance world for how they're going to pay the bill or not pay the bill. Uh, we're one DRG away from being the patient. So when we talk about as healthcare providers who we're caring for, we have to stop referring to it as the patient, because we're all the patient. It has to be this individual who's experiencing, this person who is having these symptoms, this mom, dad, brother, sister, cousin, friend. Uh, we have to humanize the experience that eventually every single one of us is gonna, gonna go through in one way or another. So I yeah. love that you say that. I think we align along that line in many other ways too. Of course. And, and we've talked about empathy and, you know, the fact that the, when you're, when you're being treated, you're going in, you're sick, you're, you're not a subject, you're a human being. I mean, really, right? Yes. So, and I think that empathy kind of also goes both ways is we don't teach people to show up as human, but we also don't teach providers to show up as human. We teach that and when I say we, I talk about the system as a whole, meaning the, the healthcare system in the United States, not the system I work for or any one particular. We teach, take off your human suit, show up as the smartest person you can be, remove all the emotion, come in with facts and data and studies. And really, sometimes what we need is for someone to just keep their human suit on and just see us 
as equals, see us as we are human beings on the same plane, struggling with the same questions. So I think, again, there's so much work we can do to personalize care in that way, not just the, the new and cool and shiny things around genomics and, you know, blood-based testing, but how do we get people to see each other for who they are and what's really important? Because at the end of the day, we all just want to be seen. Yeah, yeah. And I, I've been so grateful to have so many amazing humans on my on my program. And it, it just sparked a thought that I remember one talking about, you know, treating the patient that's in front of you as if it was a member of your family. Right. And so would you treat your brother or your mother differently than you're treating this particular patient? And, and the, you know, obviously the, the bar, we'd hope that you treat that that you'd see them the same way, right? As, as humans that have a family and have people that care for them. And they're in a difficult situation many times, particularly in the cancer space. So I, I would love to, um, there's so, I, there's so many things I want to talk to you about, but I, I think I'm looking at your screen that my, my, our, our listeners can't see it, but I'm looking at this really beautiful long bus uh, photo in the back of you. That's from the Levine cancer Institute. It's a mobile screening unit. And Lung cancer screening saves lives. And of course, you know that, you know, I'm a lung cancer survivor. And so uh, I know there's a, there's a ton of stuff you're doing, but I'd love to start with you telling us about the work that you have been doing. I believe since maybe 2016 or something, you had some special work that you're doing in the community uh, around Charlotte. So floor is yours. I really would love to have you share because it's an amazing story. Thank you so much. And you know, I'm super shy and I don't talk a lot. Um, just kidding. <laughs> we all know I talk too much. Ask my husband. Um, no. So, you know, lung cancer itself comes with a certain story, right? And that story doesn't always fit every individual, but it also comes with this heavy layer of stigma. And what we've learned from so many people over the years is the first question people are asked when they're diagnosed is, were you a smoker? And so that kind of lends itself to the question of, did you choose this? Or, And we know that non-smokers also get lung cancer. So there's a, there's a million ways that we can change the trajectory of care for those who are diagnosed, for those who might be diagnosed. But when we looked back at data and we looked back at what we were doing in our own communities, we recognized the stigma, we recognized the mistrust, we recognized that, you know, three quarters of the people that were newly coming into our cancer center, so first day they ever showed up as a patient who had a finding, they were already at stage three or stage four disease which not only translates to exorbitant dollars spent in trying to get ahead of that curve of survival, but also really translates to there's not much room for us to work within to save this precious life. So we tried to really think about how do we do it different? You know, uh, there was a national lung screening trial in 2011 that really looked at, is it chest X-ray versus low-dose CT scan. And what the ultimate finding was is that low-dose CT scanning, doing a, a CT scan of the lung space, was really actually uh, helping to improve survival and finding the cancer earlier, really allowing it to be detected at a treatable, curable stage. 
Um, and so we said, why can't we do what we've done in mammography? Because by 2016, there were many mobile mammo units. There were many communities that were experiencing positive outcomes as a result. Lots of trust built when you show up to where people are. I always tease. There's a reason that Amazon Prime is my boyfriend. It's because he shows at my doorstep and uh, I can be in my sweatpants and I get what I need. Uh, but I feel confident and comfortable. And, and that's what we experienced in mammography, too, is if you show up in, in the neighborhood, if you show up at the places where people are already receiving care, you eliminate so many barriers. So we posited back in 2016 why can we not do the same thing for lung cancer? Why can we not put that technology on a movable unit that we can drive in, that we can bring forward, that we can normalize the lung cancer experience, especially for those who are uninsured or underinsured, because they are the least likely to get diagnosed at an early stage. Typically, they present at stage four disease in an emergency department in a pain crisis or a breathing crisis. And so we recognized at that point, one did not exist. Uh, my husband will tell you my favorite word in the English language is no, because I'd love to flip that to game on. We're gonna turn this on. We're gonna figure out a way to do it because we heard a lot of early no's. No, people won't show up for screening. No, it's too expensive. Uh, no, it's too heavy to even put on wheels. And what we've been able to demonstrate uh, from our very first screening in 2017 to where we are now um, in exclusively uninsured or underinsured populations is we've been able to state shift. We've gone from the majority coming in at stage four to two thirds coming in at early stage treatable with curative intent. So it makes us very excited about not just thinking outside the box, but just stomping on the box and chucking it aside and just really approaching care different and thinking about how do we serve? How do we do this better? And, and this is just one of the ways. And we have a philosophy around whole human care. So we do a full navigation assessment that looks at, do you have a safe home to live in? Do you have fresh water to drink? Do you have food to fill your belly? Do you have a way to get to your appointments? Do you have any concerns that get in the way from the care that you deserve? And we get just such a wide variety of answers, but we don't collect those data points just to collect them. We actually take that ball and run with it. We have a team that literally are boots on the ground that then plug in resource, whether it's primary care, food pantry, we carry food carts and gas carts on the bus. It's, it's all about if we're gonna diagnose this thing, right? we need to make sure you're already set up for success. And so we made sure uh, very early on that it was, it was clear we were going to have whole human care. And we also, if you qualify for free lung cancer screening, chances are you're gonna qualify for lots of other free cancer screenings that we offer. So we cross people into those programs as well. Yeah, and, and so, so, and you're, you're in, um, oh, what's going on? I have, you hear that? I can hear you, but I don't hear anything weird. Okay. I'm hearing some feedback. Okay. Well, not on my end. That's okay. My guy will fix that. Um, what, what I was going to say is, uh, and, and, you know, you're in Charlotte. And so it doesn't, you don't have to go very far into the uh, outside of Charlotte to be in very rural 
um, a territory. And it, you know, you know, and my told you my brother lives there, so I I've spent a little bit of time in Charlotte, but but in some ways Charlotte maybe is no different than many other states that are the same, right? You don't you go 20 miles outside of a city you think is a metropolis, and and so and I know you did some work with um, you know with the reservation um that's not far uh, and i don't know i don't remember where it was but i'd love you know i'd love you to share that that part of the of the screening and the success that you had which i which i think was one of the things that just made me my brain explode when we first met yeah yeah so i think that's one of the interesting things is if you live in a big city everyone thinks everything happens in the big city and they don't think about what can't happen outside the big city so charlotte is super metropolitan uh, you know, we have a population of more than a million. It's very resource dense, even though there still are disparities that exist. Uh, if you go 20 miles outside, you're in very rural North Carolina territory uh, or South Carolina territory. You know, we're historically known as the Tobacco Belt for very good reasons. It's it's purely agriculture outside of the metropolitan area. And we have so many access issues. It can be everything from no broadband. So you can't, even if you had a smartphone, which many of those that we serve don't, you don't even have the ping to get you the information to the phone that you need. So we have those issues. We have transportation issues. We have lack of resource issues. So we have to think with this really wide open lens of it's not just what happens in the city. More importantly, it's what happens outside of those borders. And yes, we have done a lot of work with the Catawba uh, Indian Nation there in Rock Hill, South Carolina, uh, York County. And historically, if we look at lung cancer data, or we look at any cancer data or health outcomes, uh, Native Americans experience much more negative outcomes. They have much less access to resources. There, again, there's many factors that lead into that, but we brought the mobile lung cancer screening unit out after connecting with them for other reasons. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute, but we were able to increase screening rates from roughly two to 3% to more than 63% in less than a year because we showed up. And, and not just showing up is important, but when I kind of mentioned that that piece of what's what the foundation has to be, you can't just show up in a community when you need something or want something. Kind of the most important building block is being there before you're needed. Because if you show up when you need something or you want something or you're trying to research something, then you've shown up too late. You need to be there early on to invest and understand and listen to and hear and really see what communities struggle with. Because population health is amazing. Gives us lots of data points, right? It gives us lots of things to study. We can see pockets of disease in places. But what we also have to understand is there are people that are transient. There's many times people that move from one zip code to another within the span of three weeks, multiple times over and over and over again. So we can understand sometimes on a street level, if we show up at the street level, if we show up in that neighborhood, if we begin to learn who the leaders are, not just the influential affluent people, but who the people who speak on behalf of others who live beside them are. So those are just some of the lessons that we've learned in terms of 
of just being able to, and I don't want to call it success, but just being able to open access doors, right? Yeah, and I just yeah, want to reemphasize what you what you said was that the screening rate went from two to three percent to sixty three percent, which is it just still blows my mind to to hear that. But you're touching on a lot of things, and and I know we spoke about this uh, when we met that a lot of times it's the it is the ripple effect, right? And yeah, I love the way you frame it that you know you're 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 there before you need them or they need you. You're it's and and I think that oftentimes happens, you know, with for, like recruiting for clinical trials or whatever. It's like oh, our, now our hair's on fire. We got to go find these these patients, right? And it's like, well, where 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 have you been? Yes. You know, right? So this yeah. just it goes again to the distrust with the system when when people are approached that way, right? So it's one of the reasons I absolutely adore that you uh, you call your podcast research evangelists because I feel very much oftentimes we're kind of having to preach here is where the gaps are here is what is needed and um, we are constantly preaching about the fact that we can do better and it doesn't take a lot right it's it doesn't take monumental efforts it just takes us to think differently we can't go in thinking we know all the answers because we've studied the data or we've looked at the resource or we've looked at the information, show up, listen to people. They're going to tell you what they struggle with. One county may struggle with transportation. You know, if you're, let's say, for example, you're a breast cancer patient or even a lung cancer patient and you have to come for radiation and it's daily for a period of sometimes up to six weeks or more but daily, if you live two counties away and there's nothing in the county you live in and you are low income or even sometimes average income, you can't make it. So we have to learn and understand the nuances of what it takes. There is a term, um, and I call these curse words. Uh, to it, when I when our team teaches, we, we call it curse words. There's terms like non-compliant. Oh. That should never be a word. That is not a word. That is the worst thing ever, ever, ever. Because if there is non-compliance, then that's on our part as providers for failing to recognize the barriers that we, that it's incumbent upon us to move out of the way. So um, we we can't label things. We can't label it as non-compliant or frequent flyer or, you know, drug seeker, any of those things, we have to think about it as humans who are suffering. And what are we not doing to meet that need? How do we step up to the plate? How do we increase the resources and services that we're offering? Or how do we view it differently? Because sometimes it's just our view. And there's there's no shame in that view. It's just based on our experience. And maybe this is the first experience, but maybe that is the experience that needs to change how we take care of people in the future. Oh I, you you just hit you just have just hit a hot button for me with the 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 phrase non-compliant, which is just like Oh, that's great. Let's just blame the patient. Yeah, yeah, that's great. You're you're non-compliant. You know, like, uh, oh, that's it's it's just like calling uh, uh, someone in a clinical trial a, a subject. You know, I've been I've oh. been fighting in the work I do at Metadata. We talk about this all the time. It's like anytime we see it in a in 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 any conversation, or we see it in a protocol or whatever. It's like 
we see subject, we're like, all of us just go crazy, right? Because it's like, yeah. That's the dialogue that should happen. So when you say, oh, this lung cancer patient, no, it needs to be this gentleman experiencing lung cancer. It's, it, it, it shouldn't become who the person's identity is because the identity has so much more to it. So on a personal level, I'll share about 18 months ago, I experienced a ruptured aneurysm in my brain, thought it was a stomach bug, tried to stay at home. It was a COVID period. I didn't want to stress anybody out in the, in the ED, but lo and behold, uh, was really kind of traumatically and, and desperately ill. When I went into the ICU, someone sent forward a big poster board of pictures they found on my Facebook. And later I asked, well, why did you send that? And it said, because we wanted everyone to know someone loved you and someone cared for you and that you were more than just a patient or a chart number or a case. And so I think that... That just kind of solidified, again, all of what I have always believed in, but also hit home personally that we have to think of people outside of the disease state that they find themselves in, because none of us invite this stuff. None of us, doesn't matter what our behaviors are, you know, someone smokes, okay, well, I eat the last cookie in the pack every time. It doesn't mean I'm inviting disease. It means I'm living as a human. and so. That for me, that whole experience really personalized that we need to look beyond just case number, patient that has, it needs to be not part of our identity, but something we're going through that requires the support of a really smart team. Yeah. One of my friends who's a fellow advocate, uh, a caregiver uh, to her husband, when she was brilliant one time, I saw her on a panel and she, when she said, I don't like to use the word smoker. So, but she didn't say, no, she told me this before. She didn't actually say what's on the, on stage, but she said, you know, it's even if you're someone who suffers from uh, an addiction to tobacco, instead of saying you're a smoker, it's because we've, it's, it's been proven. It's, this is not up for debate. You know, the 200 and some billion dollar settlement with the tobacco companies, there's no debate that there was deception and people have been tricked into all of that kind of stuff, right? So there's no, there should be no shame if if you if you have an addiction to tobacco, you know that this this blame game or or being getting the stigma or being labeled. And so um, I, I love how you've also talked about how and you meant you touched on a little bit how little things matter, right? It's like little things. You you told me stories about like you know something is you wouldn't even think that this is something that is important, but sending out like a, an, an appointment reminder with the hospital logo on it. Right. And, and so again, walk a mile in somebody else's shoes who gets that in the mail, who's struggling, you know, to, to make ends meet and thinks it's another bill from the, from the hospital. Right. Right. How, how that just seems like such a little thing, but what kind of an, what kind of impact can that have? It, it could be everything. So, for example, today I got a call to my cell phone. Somehow, smartphones are way smarter than me, and it said healthcare organization. Like it, it labels it now when it comes in, which I don't know how it knows, which also scares me. But um, <laughs> I immediately thought, well, I don't have an appointment coming up. I 
don't need to schedule one. So maybe I just need to kind of like ignore this because I don't know what it is. It makes me uncomfortable. Anytime you get that kind of call, it means something either related to trauma, right? Re related to illness, related to cost, related to all the pieces that actually, even though they might have a positive outcome, they cause you trauma to begin with. So my natural reaction was, I'm going to waive that, right? And so I listened to it later on and it was actually, I have an appointment scheduled in November of this year and the physician's going to be out of the office and they need to reschedule. I was not thinking of November. I was thinking of Tuesday, April 25th. I wasn't thinking that far in the future, but what we've learned is to understand the patterns of how all of us function, right? So you mentioned with our reminder letters. Uh, and this is another curse word. Many people in healthcare call it no-show rate, meaning people don't show up for an appointment, a scan, a screening. We actually try to flip the narrative. We call it a show-up rate. How many people showed up? And if they didn't show up, what can we do to help them do that? Like, how do we push that into a much more positive light? But one of the things we recognized was we were sending all of our reminder letters in pre-printed, like every you know fancy organization does, you know, logoed envelopes, pre-printed labels. The show up rate was low or lower than we wanted. But when we figured it out and we started handwriting the envelopes and sent it in plain envelopes that show up rate just shot straight up. So again, it's, it's all about understanding how humans function. Same thing with cell phones. You know, we do have, even though I'm, I talked before about people that don't have signal where they live, we do have people that have signal, but they also operate off of what we call track phones or sort of that pay-as-you-go, maybe a $10 a month, you know, you have a number for a month. I mean, once you use the minutes, the phone's gone, the number changes. So we had to understand how do we overcome that barrier? But also, do people know how to clear the voicemail? Because if you leave a voicemail, but someone doesn't know how to clear it, they're never going to hear it. So how are they going to show up? So we have to just think in terms of what could the barriers be besides just someone not wanting to come forward to feel better? Because at the end of the day, literally every single human being wants to feel better, one, or feel good, or at least feel okay, and two, they want to feel seen. And so if we can keep that at the center of everything we do, regardless of tumor site, regardless of condition, just throughout the whole human healthcare experience, we would all be much better off. Yeah. And you mentioned being, being seen, which I think is, I think about that a lot. And I hear that a lot from patients from historically marginalized communities that oftentimes they don't feel like they're being seen. I heard, I just heard a story yesterday from a, from a provider, uh, you know, so she's part of, you know, she's, she's educating part of the system, but you know, she uh, had a serious thing with her, with her husband and you know, they kind of came out of the the experience like going, I don't think, you know, it, the, they had made it sort of a misdiagnosis or sort of a, they, they just felt small. They just felt like they just, they that the they weren't being treated and it, they weren't like just raising the flag. They just, they just really felt that that was part of it. It was because of how they looked or how they talked or whatever that, 
you know, and, and I think that goes to, um, you know, creating a space where people can, can feel like they're heard. And I think I read something about a minority cancer advisory council. Is that still something that's um, active? Yeah. Uh, I'd love to hear, yeah. I'd love to hear about that. Yeah. Cause I, th I believe that those kinds of things are really important. Yeah. So that's very important to us is we can think all day long that we know, understand, we've seen, you know, we, we kind of follow all the things that I've talked about, but there's nothing better than hearing the voice of people. And when we developed our Minority Cancer Advisory Council, because if you look at disparities, the disparities in communities of color, those that are impoverished, like the, across the board, they're way worse. And they have been for decades, right? Regardless of the fact that we have all this terminology around social determinants of health and population health, we have all this terminology, but the outcomes are always worse. And that's what you see at every conference you go to and every piece of research. But we said to ourselves, like, well, how do we learn more than just what we think we see, what we read? And that was to invite the voice to the table. So to, to, to our team, patient-centered care, meaning the person who may or may not, or who knows someone who's experienced a critical illness needs to be at the table. And we, when we say influential, it's not affluential, it's who influences, who can speak on behalf of those who are experiencing what it's like to live in those margins. So our Minority Cancer Advisory Council literally guides our work. They look at everything from the, the literature we create, you know, to the educational materials. They they hear out our researchers. So when our researchers come forward and say, we have this idea, they're going to be the first to say, that's never going to work here. Here's what you need to do to make it work. We support it. We want to see it work, but here's what you need to do. But then even during COVID times, they brought forward to us, and, and we're, of course, we're not internal medicine, we're not family medicine, but we're still human being care. They brought forward COVID gaps. Here are communities that aren't getting vaccines, and here is why. One of the things that we heard is there were particular populations that thought that the government was actually infusing them with disease. So we were able to address those things and improve outcomes because we sat down with the voice of the community and not just heard them speak, but took it to heart and then came back to them with results, came back and said, you said this, we did this. How did we do? And you have to go into that with no ego because it's not about being right or being smart or having all the letters. I always tell people when you work in this type of care, it isn't about the accolade. It isn't about the credit. It isn't about getting, you know, whatever kind of accreditation. It's literally about have you impacted someone in some way? You might not have gotten the cure you wanted, but have you impacted them in some way on a positive level? And oftentimes, you know, that might just be, and I think that goes back to my bias about data, is it might just be one person. Uh, I try to share with our team all the time, when we do events, even this podcast, seven people might listen, but one of those needed to hear it, and it's going to take something, one nugget to someone else, and that is going to create the ripple effect. When we do education or a screening, 15 people might show up, 
but somebody needed to be there and to, to carry it on to someone else. And the, the best example I can give is in uh, one of our rural counties here in North Carolina, uh, we had what we call a partnership with Be The Match, which you do mm -hmm. the bone marrow matching. It mm -hmm. was held at a church because the pastor at that church needed a match to get a transplant. Twelve people showed up. One of those was a match for him. Love that. Love that. I, it, you can't you can't measure that. You can't. It's not going to ever make a big splash in a paper or, you know, it's not going to make a publication, but it, it could just be that one that you need to, to touch. So we have to think about high touch as not being volume, but being quality. Yeah. And, and on a on a sort of similar note, I think of that when, you know, I talk to people about some of these, you know, targeted therapies for lung cancer, for example. And some of them are kind of rare, right? And so, you know, you think of, you know, 220,000 people getting diagnosed with lung cancer and well, maybe, you know, a thousand of them have this particular, but you know what, that's a thousand people out of 225,000, that's right. And, and so that's, a, that's the, the, the point you're making. And I, and I feel like, um, again, an additional thought I had based on what you were just saying was I, we've talked about allyship and I, I want to make sure that we touched on that because it's something that I've been thinking off a lot about as we, as you know, and I heard, I've heard you say, it's not about, you know, putting on a cape and going into the save of the day, but it's about, and I go back to the empathy and intentionality of, of what we do. And I'd love to hear just your thoughts on, you know, on allyship. Yeah, no, I agree wholeheartedly. You know, we're, we're not showing up to save the day for our own ego. Let's let's all agree. Every human being is ego driven. It's the first natural instinct, right? Every situation, you know, something goes wrong. We immediately act with the defense, which is our ego. But when we are showing up for people who who and and any of us could need help at any time, when we truly show up, we show up. We see the ego, and then we go, mm, "There's no room for you here." We're here for for this person at this moment in this time, and um, and I'm I'm certain you as a as a helper, uh, as someone who lives in the space of wanting to help others, which you beautifully do. Uh, you want to come with all the answers or some solutions, and sometimes the hardest thing is to not have that at your ready fingertips, right? And I think that's true for medical providers too, because they go to school to be taught to be perfect, to cure people and make them healthy. And when they can't have that positive outcome, it feels like a defeat or a negative hit or something, a failure. But if you connect with another human being, if you connect with that human being's family and their, their community, and you, you see someone for who they are, you develop that allyship, you show up, that is the healing right there. That's it. That's yeah. that you've taken the best step you can ever take. Everything else is icing on the cake. Yes, we want to save everyone every day, all day long, but you have to start somewhere. And one of the things that I think healthcare suffers a lot with, and I learned this from a great mentor, is analysis paralysis, which means the mm -hmm. problem looks so big 
that you get stalled and you get into, I'm going to have to have a meeting to have a meeting. I'm going to have to copy this person who copies five more people. And you have this series of meetings and nobody ever gets to action. And I always equate it back to like baking a cake. So Dave, you and I might have the same recipe. We're going to buy our ingredients from different stores. You live in a much cooler state than I do, Um, but you might be a little more extensive, but we're going to buy our ingredients from different (laughs) stores. We have the same recipe, but we're going to approach it in a different way. We have a different environment outside that influences how our oven heats up, how the cake rises. You know, the, the prices are, di- there's so many different nuances. You might mix it longer than I do. Um, I might add an extra pinch of salt, but at the end of the day, it all comes down to turning on the oven. The only way to bake the cake is to turn on the oven. If we can all start there and just turn on that oven and think about how do we bake it now, as opposed to how do we think about this for the next 10 years and, you know, come up with all these philosophy. No, let's just bake it. Let's make it. If it doesn't work, we can go back. We can try it again. We can try it again. There's more ingredients. You know, there's always an opportunity, but we have to start somewhere. And that's where we start. Yep. And I think I've heard you say, you know, you want to eat the whole elephant and maybe the elephant and his sister too, but like, like maybe we just start with a toe and just kind of. Start with a toe. One toe. Just one toe. <laughs> well, start with the baby toe. The little start with a pinky toe. toe or turn yeah. the oven on or just, yeah, yeah. let's just turn the oven on. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I have uh, in my notes here, you know, that there's low, you, you've, I've heard you say there's no limit to compassion and, um, you know, you and I could talk, literally, we could talk, this could be a six hour podcast, which we'd really put our, our listeners to sleep if we did that. But, <laughs> but, um, I love your energy and, and I'd love, I do, I, I feel the compassion, uh, you're, you definitely are, uh, you know, a, a bleeding heart with a, with a business plan and you've, you've proven it. And, if, and I continue to look at that big long bus in the background, thinking about that driving around the outskirts of Charlotte into the communities. Um, so uh, there's one thing I always ask my guests before I let them go. And it's outside of work. Tell us something that you're passionate about or that people might not know about you. This is gonna sound really nerdly, but I just love people. And my family will attest that I can be in the grocery store or Lowe's or Home Depot or Bed Bath and Beyond. And I'm annoyingly in conversation with people because I love to hear stories. I love to, I just love to learn about what makes people tick and what brings them joy and why they show up to work and what do they struggle with and you know, are you up to date on your cancer screenings and are there things I can help with? But uh, that always lends itself to like these really long, um, exhaustive conversations and not exhaustive to me, but to my family who's usually waiting in the car, <laughs> holding the bags. And they're like, mom, really? I can clearly remember at one point, my husband's uncle was in the hospital and it was at the time when you had two people to a room And I sat down with the gentleman that was on the other side of the room. I sat on his bed and I just talked to him for an hour and 45 minutes ish. And like literally heard about his nieces, his nephews, his jobs. And uh, my husband, after I came out of the room and we had been married, I think probably 20 years at this point, he said, huh, they're good at that. And I was like, 
do you know what I do? But I just, I love learning about people and I do that in a million different ways. I love to study people, um, not from a research perspective, but just to think about how people tick and what makes people feel seen and welcome. And um, aside from that, I read lots of books, um, love all sorts, uh, love classical piano, a little crushed grape therapy is always good for everyone's soul. Uh, but you did mention one thing that I will say in closing. You you mentioned how important empathy is. And what I would say at the end of the day, because we always hear how much money everything costs, grace, empathy, and compassion don't require insurance. They don't require a high salary. They don't require you to be in the CEO position in a company. Grace, empathy, and compassion are unlimited in supply and at our disposal, no matter who we are. So if, if, if I could leave this planet, when I leave this planet with any thought, it would be just give that freely. Because there's enough for all of us. I might have a stubbed toe today, which sucks. And it's the whole thing I think about all day. But you're a lung cancer survivor. And so I might look at your story and go, oh, but he survived lung cancer. But my toe really hurts. Well, guess what? There's compassion for both of us. There can be empathy for both of us. Hurt is hurt. And yeah. we can just yeah. we can just hold it, see it, acknowledge it, honor it, and take care of it, no matter what, because it doesn't cost anything other than being there. So that would be, and yes, we could talk for a thousand hours. Always, and we, I'm sure we but, will. I'm sure we will over time because we're not. You know, I'm not going away. So <laughs> no plans. As far as we I just, know, no plans. No plans, but we're not. We you know we just won't be recording all of our conversations, but. Um, True. Really, uh, I love I love how you ended it, and I love the, your thoughts on compassion and empathy. And uh, I feel the same way. And I I often I realize that I've been doing this since I was a kid, and it's it's not something that just happened overnight. You know, I was uh, I joke about the fact that I was voted the friendliest guy in my high school, and it's like, well, you know, all these years later, it's no surprise because it's just who I am. And walking a mile in somebody else's shoes and having empathy for other people, I think, is is just that is the is, those are the core values that you and I share, and it's why we're fast friends. So, yep. um, Melissa, thank you so much for the work that you do, uh, and thank you for sharing all of this. I really appreciate it, and, and I really thank you so much for being on the show. Same to you, my bestie. I cannot wait to save the world one toe at a time, whether it's an elephant or a person or no matter what. I I deeply admire all of your efforts and I'm grateful to you. So thank you. Bye.